Our scripture passage this morning is from 2 Timothy 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be also able to teach others. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, well, my name is Marshall Gallagher, and I know there are some of you who I have not met before. So, hi. Uh, I've been at Redeemer for a little bit over a year as a church planting resident. Uh, worked part-time on staff doing a lot of things, modular building consultant at times, unfortunately. Uh, but it's been a joy of mine to be here for the time I've been. And then uh, starting in January, I'll be the head pastor of Hope Community Church in the Nations, uh, which is not a church plant, and there's a long story to that. Uh, but that is not why I'm here this morning. I'm here this morning to bring you all the word um, in Second Timothy. So let me pray for that um, and on that end, and, uh, and then we'll dive in, all right? Uh, let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you uh, for another uh, Sunday that we can come together as one people, uh, as one body, as one family, and hear from you through your word. God, I pray that you would work through me, uh, through your word, into the hearts of everyone here, um, that we would have soft, receptive hearts to what you are uh, teaching us through your Holy Spirit this morning. So Lord, be with us, lift us up, encourage us, strengthen us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, well, um, 2 Timothy, I know Jamie has been going through it. Um, hopefully, you're hearing the tenderness, right? This is, this is Paul talking to his kind of mentee, um, a colleague, uh, some of Paul's last words to Timothy, um, and so they, they count. Uh, these are some of the last things that he would write, and so he's making sure that every word is really important um, and then even see how he starts, that very first verse in two, you then my child. Um, and I hope that we don't lose that tenderness because this is difficult. What Paul is telling Timothy and kind of by association, what we are receiving is difficult. Um, and, and just very quickly, you can kind of see there are these four imperatives, which are basically directives or commands or things you tell someone to do. That's what it's an imperative and it. Uh, kind of glancing back over the passage, uh, be strengthened by the grace. Then later it says entrust. Uh, later it says share in sufferings. And then finally, think over what I say. And so we're going to look at all four of those this morning. Uh, but we're going to kind of be out of order. Um, so keep it open. We'll be bouncing around. Um, but I want to ask, are, is anyone out here a fan of behavioral economics? Okay, I'm seeing a lot of head nodding. We're all, no, no one's, except for like three financial analysts. I know, I saw you guys, I know. Uh, all right, but there is this principle that we all do, we all know about, it's called delayed discounting. Okay, and basically what, what this is, is it's why 
uh, I need to lose 10 pounds, yet I will have that big slice of pizza like I did Friday night. And basically what the principle is, because there's something in the future that you'd rather have, but because the value of it, you can't quite grab onto it right this moment. You can't experience it right now. It loses value. The longer out that is, it loses value. And so that's why that piece of cake looks so good. But you know, you know that you would feel better, like looking in the mirror, being like, all right, I fit into those pants again. Or, you know, I'm not getting tired going up the steps or something like that. I feel great. You know that that would be a better result. But it's why that thing right now just seems so much better. And so removed from it, on a piece of paper, you would say, oh, well, I would rather feel better, have more energy, be fit, all that. But right there in that moment, what's presently before you has way more value than that thing that's being delayed down the road. And so we've all experienced this. It's why that we have these tensions and things that we really like and things that we wish we were better at, all that. That's what delayed discounting is. And so what people say is, how do you beat this? Right? It's this principle that we all kind of do. How do you beat this? Is You try to vividly picture what that'll be like down the road. Whatever that goal is, whatever that final piece, what you're trying to accomplish, you think about it, think about how you'll feel, think about how you'll look, think about... So trying to kind of play tricks on your mind in order to, to kind of get past that present momentary thing that's in front of you, temptation maybe that's in front of you. And it doesn't have to be two bad things or bad or good. It could be anything. But that is what Paul is sort of trying to do and encourage Timothy in. He's not rebuking Timothy. He's not correcting him. He's just saying, focus on what matters. Focus down there, not just right presently in front of you. Because I think Paul knows that there will be things that are going to come up. They're going to, to lead him away, to distract him, to to get him to worry about other things coming up. And he's saying, focus down there. Picture it. Make it vivid. Grab onto it. And that's, that's why he's, he uses these three metaphors. And so nothing better to keep everyone focused than bouncing around randomly throughout the passage, but that's what we're going to do. Uh, all right, so verse 4 it says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Um, With those three metaphors, I think we can kind of start picking up some themes in there. It's about diligence, focus, hard work, sticking to the task that you were assigned to, the, the purpose, the role. So it's talking about what, what you were made for. What is the athlete supposed to do? So opposed to compete supposed to compete according to the rules to earn the prize, to earn that crown. Um, Same with being enlisted in in a military force. You have a goal, you have an objective. Same with the farmer, you work hard, you stay focused, and then you get the share of your labor. And so applying that to us spiritually, applying Paul, applying that to Timothy, I think it brings up a question for every single one of us, do we even care? It's a hard question to ask ourselves. Do we even want to compete for this crown that Paul is talking about? Of course, the crown is reaching the end of the race, as he'll talk about later. 
getting to the end of time, what Jackie prayed for, that one day longing for this, no more tears, no, no more sorrow. We're going to behold Jesus face to face, receive a crown of glory. And the motivation being that we're giving God glory, but I don't want to skip past the do we even care to get that crown? Do you care about getting the prize? Um, and, and my intention is not to have everyone question whether they're saved or not, but it's, it's a healthy thing to think through. If you're apathetic toward the Christian life and you say you're a Christian, there, there's a discontinuity there. And it, it would only help us to be introspective and wonder, why do I want that crown? Is, is that what I'm seeking or do I not care and Why? And I think that is a question that's begged through these, uh, through these metaphors. Um, but, again, like taking the summary of be diligent, focus, stay on task. So what's the task, right? What, what, is, what, what are we supposed to focus on? Uh, Paul kind of gives the who, um, not specifically mentioned, but clearly pleasing the one who's enlisted you, Jesus being the one who enlisted you. I think you guys have made that connection. But now kind of practically, what does that look like? What is our actual mission? What are we supposed to do? And he gives these two kind of two folds, a side of, each, of one coin, uh, again, imperatives. And it's in trust and share. And so the first one in trust, verse 2, it says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so very quickly that men is the word for men and women, right? So ladies, you don't get a, a pass this morning. Um, and then guys, we can't just be blamed for everything because we're probably not doing that good of a job. We need help. So we're all in this together, right? Um, but so this, this word entrust, um, which kind of means to hand over, right? To hand over, put before, um, and that in the presence of many faith, or presence of many witnesses, a lot of people have said it could mean a, a lot of different things. Um, I think I landed on, uh, it has been out in the open. It's been verified, it's been able, it's been tested. Um, and so here is what it is. And you're thinking, all right, what is it? What's this special message that Paul's doing? And so it's nothing less than the gospel. And I think that's kind of the Sunday school answer, like, oh, well, Jesus, that's the answer, right? Um, but Paul, in many, many letters, centers down on this. Remember the even phrases like, I came to preach Christ and Christ crucified. Or to the Corinthian church, he said, I wanted to deliver to you what was of first importance, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he rose again for the, according to the scriptures. Um, even to the Galatian church, he was saying, I received this gospel, tested it with the other apostles. Not that there's another one, but you may be turning away from this pure one gospel. And then even earlier in a letter to Timothy, uh, a different one, he writes, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So what are we supposed to entrust? It's the gospel, this good deposit in the passage last week. Um, 
And even the, the, the heading on your Bible of the last section is guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now this is the next step, entrust this good deposit to others. And so that's the what, and so what about the who? In verse 2, again, it, it lays it out fairly plainly. It says, who will be able to teach others also? And so are we supposed to hand it over to people who can teach or to people who will be able to teach after we've taught them how to do all these things? And, and I'd say it's a little bit of both. So it's not just find people who are already good at this and make sure that they get the right information. Or find some people, spend some time with them, teach them how to teach, and then maybe someday they'll be able to entrust it. So it's this combination of the two, and there's a really important word in the middle of it. It says faithful, faithful men and women. And so it's those who will end up being able to hand this over to others, to entrust this over to others. And that faithful word is incredibly important. Basically, it just means you've been tested. It's been seen that you've been trustworthy. And so think of a good deposit. Think of like, I think of like the cartoon bag of money that has swapped hands between like Bugs Bunny and another character. Like you have that, or I guess Bugs Bunny wasn't the guy robbing the banks, but you guys wouldn't get what I mean, right? Um, But so think about you have this wonderful treasure deposit. And you're not going to kind of do an open casting call, say, all right, who would like to take this? But then two, if you're sitting in that crowd, you'd, if it's like, hey, if I gave you a huge sum of money, would you, would you steward it well? Would you be really, really responsible with it? I think all of us would be like, oh, yeah, of course. And so the question isn't necessarily, would you be faithful? I think we should ask ourselves, are we faithful now? Like, what, what would your track record suggest you would do if someone entrusted that to you? If you, couldn't, if you couldn't speak, you couldn't do anything, it was just the evidence that was behind you, and this isn't a, if you're a good or bad person, it's not that. This is, are you trustworthy? If someone hands you something of great value, what, what would your track record of faithfulness say or predict about what you would do with that deposit? And so if you're sitting here and you think, you know what, I, I could probably engage in kind of this reciprocal discipleship with someone. I have somebody in mind who just popped into mind. I, maybe, maybe I should, if this is really part of our mission, this is the purpose, this is one of the singular focuses that we should have for the Lord, maybe they would be a great person to sit down with. Jot their name down right now. If somebody comes to your mind right now, write down their name. You could even write it in the Bible, and we won't tell Jamie about it. But write down their name and just start praying it, that God might open up a door or something that you could enter into a discipling relationship with them. But on the other side, if, if you were thinking, what would I do with that deposit? Am I, am I entrustable? And, and maybe... Ha- Am I distracted by something else? Am I, am I the soldier who has kind of gotten involved with civilian affairs? I've, I've just changed kind of what my focus is just a little bit. And, and is there anything that you need to do or, or um, think through or go back to and, and 
spend some time healing over or reconciling over? Is there something preventing you from being that person who would be trustable in this situation? Um, And so it's not just content. It's not just handing over content, but it's also the person who's handing that over needs uh, wisdom and to know how, how do I find these people? How, how can I make sure that I'm handing it over to faithful men and women? Like, what, what, how, do I, how do I discern whether or not they are faithful? If I can trust them with this, will they be able to teach? And, and for any of you that have tried this, it's really, really difficult. It's really discouraging at times, too. And why I said that this was a hard passage is discipling somebody and trusting this to others, it takes time, it takes patience. And just think of Jesus. He, he gave it to 12. One handed him over to be arrested, and one denied him. Like that, Those are not good odds, and I guarantee you Jesus is probably a better discipler and teacher than any of us. And so if that was Jesus' fate... We, we can't go in thinking it will be perfect. But we need, and so it's all the more important, we need to pray that we have both the wisdom and the knowledge to hand this over. But just because we don't doesn't mean that we, we get a free pass, right? And so if this is a difficult side, the other one, at first you're like, oh, we'll share, this sounds great. The other side of that coin, kind of if we maybe pump the brakes on entrusting it to others and really seeking out discipling relationships. Sharing and suffering is maybe the one we just flat out run from. And if we're supposed to entrust and share in suffering, uh, I can see why Timothy would need some encouragement. If that is our singular purpose, our singular mission. And Uh, So let me just read it in verse 3. It says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I think you guys can understand this. It just means share in suffering. Now, I know probably in Hendersonville, which is a suburb in a southern Bible Belt city of Nashville in a country, this is probably one of the safer places in the world. And so suffering can feel distant. Does anyone kind of feel me there? Suffer, when you hear suffering, you're just like, I don't, I don't really know what that... Like, I guess if I get sick, but that's not what this is talking about, right? Like, anyone could suffer and not please God through their suffering, and, and someone could suffer and please God. So it's not just that suffering exists. It's how do we suffer in the suburbs? Like, it's hard to think through. Um, And I think a lot of people have said, like, well, did you know that there are people literally suffering for talking about the gospel, that they're not safe physically? And of course, we need to know and pray for all the places around the world that speaking about Jesus can literally get you killed. But God did not make a mistake placing every single one of us here. Like, God saw this coming, We're still called to suffer, and he didn't make a mistake in Hendersonville with you all right here. And so what what does that look like for us? Um, 
it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And he says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Jamie talked about this last week. And then later in Luke, Jesus says it again. He says, whoever speaks to preserve, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That's a terrible propaganda message, right? If you're building an army and you say, hey, I want you to join me. I want you to know, though, that you're going to die and people will hate you and you'll be ridiculed and mocked. You coming? That's not a way to build a force of soldiers, right? And I think if every one of us, before coming to Christ, if it were all up to us in our heads, that, hey, you can come follow this guy, Jesus. He's going to teach you that everything you have is of little value and that you're going to come and die. And guess what? The whole symbol of the whole thing is... Uh, a way that you'll be executed metaphorically. <laughs> it's a terrible propaganda message. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, I love the Bonhoeffer quote. He says, uh, when Christ bids a man, he bids him come and die. Again, n- the, the picture is not getting rosier. And it doesn't make sense, does it? At least at first. But I don't think it has to always make sense. I know that when I first came in contact with Jesus, nothing made sense. Um, And it reminds me of a a story in the Gospel of John. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus is basically rebuking this whole crowd. He says, you all are just here for bread. You're just here for the stuff I can give you. He says, you know, if you follow me, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people are kind of rightly like, what? He's like, yeah. You are going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Nobody knows what he's talking about. Everybody just starts walking away, thinks he's a lunatic. And the disciples are like, "This this is weird. And it's very, very difficult what you're asking us to do, what you're telling us about. And so Jesus is like, all right, so everybody walks away. And then he turns to the disciples, right? He says, okay, are you going too? Are you leaving too? Are you walking out? And Peter is, responds, the one who would end up denying him. Peter responds that moment. He says, where else are we going to go? We know who you are. And even though this doesn't make sense, even though this is really hard, I can't go back. I don't know what else I would go to. And so I think when we think about this suffering and we get to know Jesus, we hear about all these very, very strange things like when we're weak, he's strong. That doesn't make sense. Uh, The rich are actually the poorest and the poorest are the richest. That doesn't make sense. We have all these upside down, Jesus came in his most powerful moments as meek and mild 
right? Christmas time, baby in a manger and a stable and a, you know, like, none of that makes sense. But we get to suffering, we're like, yeah, that doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't know if that's the mission that I should be on. I don't know if that's really what you're calling me to, Jesus, is the suffering part, because that piece doesn't make sense to me. And yet, I think the reason is not if it makes sense or if we understand what we are supposed to do. Because I would say that all of us get this. We see how it connects with the cross. We see how it connects with our lives. We've seen examples of this outside of ourselves that are incredibly inspiring of people suffering great things for the gospel. And then when it comes to us, we're like, yeah, but I think God might be calling me to something. It's not because we don't know what our mission is. I think it's just because we're afraid. It's because we're scared of what it might mean. I think we're afraid to look foolish in front of other people. We're afraid we might get hurt too bad and God won't be able to put us back together again. I think we're afraid of maybe missing out on some dream of ours that if I gave all of this to God and actually started suffering, I don't know that I would get that, and maybe God's not better than what I'm really hoping for secretly. I know that's why I hesitate. And, and so whether it's comfort or pleasure or status or just the things of this world, the reason that I hesitate to walk into to share with suffering is because I'm scared and there's that present fear and I'm losing sight of that future future value and I also forget I forget that one of the most common things that God says one of the most frequent commands in the entire Bible is do not fear People come before God in terrifying circumstances, and he says, do not be afraid. An angel comes to Mary, first thing, do not be afraid. That is the God we serve, and even though it doesn't make sense, God says, do not be afraid. And so what what does suffering in the suburbs look like? And I think, especially here at Redeemer, we're tempted to think, and I'll be hyperbolic, but like, well, it looks like me really putting that non-Christian in his place on Facebook, standing for truth, right? I think, I think here in the Bible Belt, suffering looks a lot more like Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do than it does cleansing the temple telling everybody how, how they should be doing things. And, and I know I'm tempted into that rather than to be mocked and spit on and betrayed and forgive people. And so I don't know what that looks like in your context, but maybe it means that you eat lunch with your boss no one would rather spend one more minute with them because of how often they've talked down to the entire group of employees. But you're just going to go. 
and probably be talked down to. Or maybe it's the new person who just moved in that doesn't quite know how to find their place in Hendersonville and, you know, maybe they put out like an Alabama sign in their yard or something and you don't do that around here. I don't know what it is. That would be my choice neighborhood, but... And maybe you are the one who continues to befriend them. Or maybe it's the jerk neighbor that, you, that everyone doesn't like for good reason because they are mean to everyone. They're the stickler. Like they're the HOA warrior. And they are not pleasant, but you befriend them. And you're long-suffering toward them. Maybe it's not debating your brother-in-law during Christmas about inerrancy. Maybe it's just listening. I think in our context, suffering in those little ways can be much more powerful than we give credit to because there are not tribal people with spears running around that we can walk across the street from Walmart to and try to share the gospel with. It's just not our context. So how do we suffer? And, and I hope you think on that. Um, and that's what Paul encourages Timothy to do. So that third imperative is to think. Think of the gospel. So he says in verse 7, he says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And did anyone read that? Like, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding. Which one is it? Should I think, and, or should I wait for God to give me understanding? And it's yes. You should think, and the Lord will give you understanding. I know this is incredibly frustrating to me. I don't know if it is for anyone else. It's like, well, tell me what to do. Yeah, you're supposed to think, and then God will I'll reveal everything to you. And, and I know that I will go on one side or the other. Paul wrote letters on one side or the other. He wrote to an entire group of people who were way too passive. We were just sitting back saying, I'm just going to wait for God to come back. I'm going to wait for him to fix everything. I'll wait for God to work and move. He said, get up. If you don't work, you don't eat. Like, get up. But then we can just strive and strive and strive and try to take control and take control, not trusting God because we'd rather have our lives in our own hands. It's safer. It's not as scary. And so if our mission, twofold, to entrust and to share in suffering, and our mission is to look to that future crown, that future glory, then time, even frustrating time, thinking over, considering this, waiting for God to give you understanding, maybe getting less than you want in both areas, it's not wasted. Because our mission is to grow closer to God. That's who we're aiming after. And so time spent in this kind of mysterious tension of thinking and God giving us understanding, that's good time spent. And so if you've kind of been following the four imperatives, I've skipped the very first one. It says, you then, my child, 
be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I know when I read phrases like this, it feels like it should be in the beginning or the end, and it's kind of that throwaway. It's like at the end of an email signature where it's like, for his glory, comma, Marshall Gallagher, like in his service, and, and it's this like, okay, it's a spiritual kind of nicety. It's a toss-away thing. That's not what it is here. It's not what it is right here. It's probably not what it is anywhere, but... He says, be strengthened. One, because it's hard. Entrusting the gospel to other people and sharing in suffering is not easy. But two, this is how Paul got along. This is how he did it. He's encouraging Timothy, and then later, 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8, Paul says this. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me to, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So he uses that metaphor again, and, and so it's not that Paul was just fighting with his grit. It's not that he just said, you know what, I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus, I'm going to make sure I do this, I'm make sure I suffer, I'm going to find people to disciple. That's, that's not what it was. Paul wasn't just trying harder. He was looking at Jesus. He was being strengthened by the grace that he had, by the gospel himself. That's what was motivating him. I hope it motivates you. And so in this set, setting, Jesus is both the superlative of this, I mean, just think of his life. He entrusted the gospel. You think of the Great Commission, you can think of all, or right in Acts 1, right before he ascends into heaven. He's entrusting this. And they're not perfect. They say, I'm going to give you power through the Holy Spirit to do this. So Jesus entrusts this in the most faithful way, and Paul is imitating Jesus in that manner. And then suffering. Jesus did far, far more than just share for our suffering and for Paul's suffering. He took on all the suffering that we should do so that we get to suffer for the gospel and know Christ more through that. Again, it doesn't make sense, but I don't think it has to. So Jesus has already done both of these for you. So why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what was driving Paul. It was the grace that he had. He knew who God was. He knew he, who he had in God and what God had done for him. And that's what was motivating him. That was that picture in the distance that was vivid and clear, that kept him focused and so my encouragement to you is to be empowered, be strengthened by the gospel, by what you have, what you've seen Christ do for you, because there's no other way that we will continue on and entrust and share in suffering without constantly being fed through the gospel that we already have. Amen? Amen. Let me, let me pray. Lord, um, I would just ask that you would be gracious to us. 
that you would give us your strength, that you would even calm our fears, Lord. It is scary to follow you in this way. God, we know you are good. We've seen who you are. And so even when it doesn't make sense, help us trust you. Help us be willing to, sh- to suffer for the gospel. And through that, help us entrust this message to other people so that we can see life flourish around us. And that you would have glory, Lord, and that we would continue to run the race well in faith because of your faithfulness to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.